Well, good morning. Good morning. I, um, I have to tell you that the singing this morning was right on target. Uh, in fact, um, I really hope that in addition to taking home the scriptures and the notes, that uh, you'll be able to take home uh, some of the words to the songs as well. Gene, thank you. Uh, I, as I was reading Jesus Draw Me Ever Nearer, I thought, if you can get the ideas of the words uh, in that particular hymn, we're done. That covers pretty much the map of what we're going to be doing uh, with you. So um, it's kind of a cheat sheet, in a way, uh, for what we're about. I want you to believe something that is true. It's true in the scriptures, it's true throughout history, that what you read, and obviously take in, but what you read changes history. Let me give you an example. Uh, one of my favorite movies is the movie 13 Days, which is about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that's despite the fact that Kevin Costner's in it. He does an okay job, but he butchers a Boston accent um, in the process. But it's, for those who don't know the story, there was this sort of standoff between uh, the USSR and the U.S. over missiles in Cuba. And it really looked like it could lead to World War III. But President Kennedy had recently read the book the Guns of August, about how World War I started. And as he looked at the dominoes that had fallen in order to create World War I, he was absolutely determined to find a way not to have World War III start. This one would, be, would have been nuclear. Reading that book changed his outlook as he headed into that crisis. And as you know, the crisis was averted. What you read changes history. Well, the spine of this weekend, in terms of the scriptures, is the book of Hebrews. That's what we'll be thinking about in various ways, um, especially chapters 11 and 12. And I believe that it can change our histories if we understand what uh, the writer is saying there. Now, up until recently, I think, Hebrews has been a relatively ignored book in the New Testament, certainly in the 20th century. I can't tell you why exactly. I think so much concentration was on either the Pauline epistles or on the Gospels that this book, whose author we do not know, simply kind of went by the way. We can guess at the authorship. All sorts of guesses have been made, but we don't really know. But it's a critically important book for the life of faith, particularly looking at the issues of disillusionment and hope. Let me give you the historical background. Uh, it's helpful to understand the book. Of course, the, at the time of Jesus, the Jews were living uh, under the Romans, but prior to that, they had had freedom under a group eventually known as the Hasmoneans after the Maccabean Revolt. And there was a window of time where they ruled themselves uh, and could worship freely 
I want you to imagine that we're in this country and then all of a sudden we've lost freedom. We've had it all these years and then all of a sudden somebody's taken over and we're no longer our own. That's the position of the Jews under the Romans. They've been under the tyranny of Rome since 63 BC uh, after Pompeii. And since then, they've been waiting for deliverance. Now, that's an important background for the Gospels, but it's also an important background uh, for the book of Hebrews. And interestingly enough, for the Jews during this period of time, the time that Marcia identified as Judaism, the latter part of that period, the favorite scriptural book, the prophet that everybody was reading, the sort of bestseller, if you can use that kind of image, was Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. I know that we could divide over that. <laughs> the English probably have a third pronunciation. I don't know what the options are here. We, we have the correct one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Rule Britannia. <laughs> Why Habakkuk? Because the prophet was complaining in his time about the horrible shape of his nation, the situation that they found them in. And I'd encourage you to turn to your booklets for the weekend and turn to page 25 or turn uh, to uh, Habakkuk chapter 1. It's on page 25, I think, in the... In 23? Okay. going to start with verse 2. Listen to his complaint. Listen to the honesty of his complaint. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Can you understand why Jews living under the Romans might have found this book applicable? Well, God is giving, gives an answer later on in the book that he is going to answer Habakkuk's prayer. He's going to send in the Babylonians to judge unfaithful Israel. says this in Habakkuk 2, for the revelation waits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. In other words, I'm going to show you at, at the right time what's going to happen. It's going to happen. It speaks of the end. It will not prove false. I'm telling you the truth. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he, meaning the king of Babylon, is puffed up. His desires are not upright. He's going to be the agent for this judgment. But the righteous will live by his faith. In other words, there's a contrast between this unfaithful, proud, dysfunctional tyrant who's going to be an agent of judgment for Israel and the righteous now, don't think perfectly righteous. Think of the ones who are trying to walk in God's way. The ones following God will get through this season of judgment by relying on their God. The righteous will live by his faith in the midst 
of this coming attack. Well, now fast forward to Jewish Christians living after Jesus. They are Jews who've come to faith in the Messiah, Messianic Christians, various titles we could give them. Here they're simply called Hebrews. It's before the fall of the temple, which was in 70 AD. They are followers of Jesus who are pressured from two sides. From their fellow Jews, they're looked down on because their fellow Jews do not accept Jesus as the Messiah. But on the other hand, because they're Jews, they are looked down on by the Roman authorities. Because they're worshiping Jesus as Lord in contrast to Caesar. They're in what would be called in baseball a squeeze play. You know, when a runner gets caught between uh, two people who've got the ball, throwing it back and forth, squeeze play. They're in a squeeze play between the Romans, because they're Jews, and from the Jews, because they're believers in the Messiah. They're fellow Jews. I remember when I was a new Christian at boarding school, uh, my last semester there. Uh, at the Loomis School, as it was then called. And I felt like I was in a squeeze play. On one hand, I had the peer pressure to conform to a very cynical and unbelieving prep school environment. But on the other hand, I was a brand new Christian and I was trying to figure out how to please God and I didn't know how to do that either. And I, so I was in that moment where nothing worked very well. Never, nothing felt comfortable. we often find ourselves in a squeeze play with competing values, not just between uh, scriptural values and worldly values, but, but circumstances in our life where we're responsible for kids and older parents or responsible for work and for family or whatever. Crushed. And we can't seem to ever get it right. And that's where these Hebrew Christians would have lived. Now, the letter to the Hebrews should probably be called the Sermon to the Hebrews because it has more marks of a sermon than a letter. Probably began as a sermon and then sort of, in a sense, translated into written form. It's based on the exposition of several Hebrew scriptures, mostly from the Psalms. But in Hebrews 10, it's Habakkuk. And it's a word to us as we look at our lives in our squeezed plays. Something seems wrong. There's been a discontinuity between the expectations uh, of them as believers and the reality of their lives. So where are you, as we head into this passage, where are you in a squeeze play right now? Where are you trying to balance things that just seem impossible to balance? Where are you suffering in that tension? where life does not seem to be plan A. Now, the Hebrew Christians apparently uh, initially handled persecution well. Hebrews 10, 32. Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. Now, 33, to me, is a very humbling verse because very rarely are we facing the kind of insult and persecution that those early Christians face and that our brothers and sisters around the world face. 
You sympathize with those in prison, presumably for their faith, and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you, had, you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. And that, there's actually a line in that hymn we just sang about looking ahead to the possessions on the other side uh, of, in the new Canaan, in the new promised land. So they had it right, at least for a while. They were doing fine in the midst of persecution. That last verse, 34, had particular meaning to us at our parish, Redeemer, as we were first sued, and then we had to leave behind a multi-million dollar plant we had just paid for to go worship in a warehouse. And I have to tell you, the con congregation accepted with considerable joy the confiscation of that property. But now something's happening. They're apparently losing heart. The Lord does not seem to be coming through. They have a similar complaint to Habakkuk, and I think that's why the Hebrews writer uh, uses the passage. And so he gives them a call to hang in there, to look ahead to a reward, to trust in the promises of God. Verse 35, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Now, the verses in Habakkuk about judgment that's coming refer to the Babylonians, but the Hebrew writer, the Hebrews writers now takes those verses and applies them to the coming of Jesus. Verse 37, for in just a little while, he, rather than the revelation, which is what it is in the Old Testament, he says, he who is coming will come and will not delay. We'll talk more about hope. Hope is trust, trusting God for a good future while experiencing a difficult present. Hope is believing that God will come to set things right in the end. But how do we live while we're hoping? Well, we live with, we're, we're called to live with trust in God rather than giving in to despair. Now, let me be clear. This is not a Pollyanna approach. We must grieve grievous things. The scriptures expect us to weep as part of a faithful life. We're even commanded to weep with those who weep. And when Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus, I always, this always strikes me. He's standing there. He knows, if you read the, read the story carefully, he knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead in about 30 seconds. And yet he weeps. You weep loss. You weep grievous things. We're not to be sweeping things under the rug. That's not, not only not good for us, it's not God's intention for us. But to grieve is not to despair, although the emotions underneath the surface are what might be called kissing cousins. Faith is trusting God in the midst of pain, not some magic pill that eliminates pain. But verse 38, but my righteous one will live by faith. And then there's a warning not to step back from the path of faith. 
Now, how we view adversity makes a huge difference as to how we live our lives. And that's even noticed in academic studies. I want you to listen carefully to this quote from Susan Cain's book entitled, Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. <laughs> and let me just make a comment about the, the, the book. I, I highly recommend the book particularly for parents and for teachers, uh, but really for all of us, because 40% of us are introverts. Um, I'm not in that category, but I live with a, a gaggle of introverts. Uh, <laughs> our, I was looking, thinking of our immediate family, and we're divided 50-50, introverts and extroverts. Um, it's quiet, the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking, but quiet, and the author is Susan Cain, I was, I was struck, Jonathan, by the game you're playing where meet as many people as you can. <laughs> Introverts get extra credit if they win that game. I'll, I'll double. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But listen to what she says in this book. She's talking about a study done at the Foley Center, uh, the Foley Center for the Study of Lives at Northwestern University. There's a Dr. Dan... McAdams, and he studies the stories that people tell about themselves. And Cain writes, we all write our life stories as if we were novelists, McAdams believes, with beginnings, conflicts, turning points, and endings. And the way we characterize our past, our past setbacks, profoundly influences how satisfied we are with our current lives. Unhappy people tend to see setbacks as contaminants that ruined an otherwise good thing. I was never the same again after my wife left me. While generative adults, those who, if you will, keep generating energy in their lives and, and pass life, life on to others, while generative adults see them as blessings in disguise, the divorce is the most painful thing that ever happened to me, but I'm so much happier now with my new wife. Those who live the most fully realized lives, giving back to their families, societies, and ultimately themselves, tend to find meaning in their obstacles. In a sense, McAdams has breathed new life into one of the great insights of Western mythology, that we, where we stumble is where our treasure lies. Now, as Christians, we can go even further than this. We are not just living our own personal histories and telling our own stories. As Marcia said last night, we are part of God's story. But how we understand this makes all the difference in the world. And this brings us back to the timeline, and I'll pass it over to Marcia. Okay, good morning, everybody. Here's what I'm going to do first. This is a test. This is only a test. No cheating. You can't look at your books. Five minutes to a five-year-old, because this is our story. And we're going to look very closely today at a couple of places on this timeline that are especially meaningful for us. But first of all, let's do it. First one, beginnings. beginnings. I'm going to shorten it like that. So we know the story begins before the beginnings. 
And um, not only is God before the beginning and the lamb is slain before the beginning, but you are chosen and known before the beginning. But these are all the big global stories. Creation, our fall, um, uh, Noah, our situation, um, Tower of Babel. And um, so then God solves the problems that surface there by choosing one man. And the next one is patriarchs and this is a bad picture of Abraham I don't know if I can make him look more distinguished um, okay so at the time of the calling of Abraham um, there's a promise made that the people will sojourn in Egypt and still be released after 400 years so Abraham Isaac Jacob and then Jacob's 12 sons and one of them gets them all into Egypt, and that's Joseph, and this is Egypt. So all of God's people, all of Abraham's family, end up in Egypt, and then Mo takes them out. What's that? Exodus. And then they don't land in Canaan. They land in the wilderness. And there are so many features of the wilderness. We could spend weeks on it. But this is not a McDonald's hamburger. It's the law. The law is given in the wilderness. And as the people of God love the law and cling to the law, the law shapes them and they reflect God's character to the watching world. And then it's time to take the land. And what's the next one? Conquest. They go in and they take the territory. And God gives them different instructions for each city, and there are some cities that they're afraid to take. Think about that just as a kind of spiritual analogy. Are there things God might like to give you that you don't want to be given? Scary things, things that represent challenges? Everywhere they resist taking what God wants to give, it becomes a continuing, the people become, and the city becomes a continuing problem for them. Okay, so God's people um, uh, take the land, and then they have judges rule them. And after judges, kings. And the northern tribes um, are taken by the Assyrians, and the southern tribes um, are uh, are taken by the Babylonians, and so they go into exile. Why must they have exile? Why did the prophets say, if you don't cling to the law, I won't keep you in my land? Disobedience, yes. To what? The law. They're supposed to be clinging to the law, and they keep letting it go. So exile, they come back, the return. And coming back... Uh, what's their approach to the law? Judaism, it's the super law. Make it stronger and stronger and stricter and stricter. And so they create a hedge around the law. And we hear Jesus, the next one is Messiah, comes on the scene as the fulfillment of God's plan from before the beginning. And we hear Jesus conflict or take on this uh, super Judaism, this hedge around the law. And um, 
It's caused a lot of anti-Semitism and misunderstanding. It's not this law he's opposing. He doesn't hate the law. He fulfills the law. It's what they made of it. And in misunderstanding that, um, we've done a lot of damage as a church. Okay, so quick review. That's good. If you have a five-year-old, you can work on that on the way home. Tell them the whole story. Um, I went through the... Did, what? Oh, return. I forgot return. This is important. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. And Islam, yeah, we talked about this. All, I didn't really do it much yesterday. In 70 AD, the temple is destroyed, as Jesus promises it will be. And there's a little line on your timeline that sort of goes down here. We're missing the dotted line, but I believe there should be a dotted line back up to the timeline. Judaism had to be recreated because the whole sacrificial system couldn't go forward without a temple. So how do you do that? And that is, you know, um, part of how this continued is uh, a kind of recreated Judaism that bypasses the sacrificial system, if you will. Then somewhere around, is it six or 700, um, comes Islam. Uh, and then we have this dotted line before the return. Return should be over here. Um, because I believe that, um, that there's a, a clear thread in the scriptures that says the Jewish people will be returning to the Lord in some way or another. Um, I, I went quickly yesterday. Let me just remind you of the first three or four takeaways. And by the way, anybody has interrupting privileges, so just you know, raise your hand if I'm going too fast or didn't make sense in some way. But um, takeaway number one uh, was um, God knows the end from the beginning or um, God is before the beginning. Um, Takeaway number two is we're born into a war zone. There's plan B for you. Um, our lives will have a plan B uh, aspect to them because of what we're born into, the state of the world that God is seeking to resolve through Abraham's family. Number three was God sets the terms. He decides how he is to be approached from Abel to his son. God sets the terms, and he can do that because he made us. It's his world, and we're his people. And number four is reveal, reverse, restore. We see that pattern over and over again. Um, he reveals his purpose, and then it looks like the whole thing comes unglued and falls apart. And people are tempted to despair. Abraham's tempted to despair. Joseph is tempted to despair. And yet God has a reversal in mind. And it helps us to remember that. That's one of the ways of God. That's one of the ways he behaves. And if you're in the middle of a reversal, it's good to know. And it's good to, to identify that as a way of God. So I want to look um, very closely at a couple of scenes this morning and just add some observations to our list. Um, but first, let me look at Joseph for just a second. It's about one man, yes, um, but it's also about how God fulfills through Joseph's trials his will for the whole people. And that leads us to number five, 
which is the plot is communal. God's plot is always communal. And just think about it in terms of ascension. The plot for your life and how you respond to it is meant to bless everyone around you. It's meant to help move the community the way he intends to move the community where you're planted in Pittsburgh. It's never just you. So the plot is communal. What happens in Joseph's life changes the nation. Um, God said in Genesis to Abraham this, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years, but I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end they will come away with great wealth. So think about that. God used Joseph's trials and his faithfulness to place his whole people on the path to their redemption. I want to refer you, before we move on, to just um, a couple of quotes. They're in your, uh, in your handout on um, our page for today. Which page is that? 23. Um, so Joseph's quote number one. Uh, God has made me... This is after his brothers have come in for the reunion. And um, uh, you remember the story that he's... Well, well, we'll go back to that. Just the reunion. God has made me fruitful in the land of my grief. Isn't that an interesting thing as we think about our own reversals? Just hang on to that. God has made me fruitful in the land of my grief. How has he already, how could he make some grief that you or I are carrying today fruitful? It's one of the ways of God. He makes our griefs fruitful. And then the second thing that, that um, Joseph said, it was God who sent me here to preserve your lives. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here. He says to his brothers who sold him into slavery, not you. God who sent him. What did that work of God look like? It looked like betrayal and imprisonment and false accusation. And Joseph is saying, God did this. It's hard to wrap our minds around, but we need to do it. And a word about personal guilt. You may be saying, thinking about last night, oh, it's okay for the Hebrew midwives, but I'm the guilty party in my crisis. I did the betrayal, or I made the wrong choice, or I, um, you know, turned aside from following God closely. And I feel positive that when Joseph was languishing in his various pits and prisons, he must have been thinking, what an arrogant SOB I was. What did I have to tell them my dreams for? <laughs> I mean, really, what was the point of that? His God revealed, you know, something to him, but he must have, must have thought. He caused his own reversal. 
And you and I can't say he was innocent. He probably was an arrogant SOB. You know, I mean, they had something. They were reacting to something. So what does that say to us? In the story of Joseph, yet God used, even in the mix of that, his own sin in the mix of that, God used that situation to, to carry forth his purposes on his kingdom timeline. He's not limited by our limitations, even our failures. What a relief. We're not saying choice doesn't matter, but rather that God can still weave our failures into something fruitful. So, okay, I just want to make this one observation because I see it in all kinds of places. Um, Look at the story of Joseph. I see the, the macro in the micro in this story. And not just this story, but many. And if you kind of get this lens at looking at the Old Testament, you can get a handle on what Jesus is saying when he says it's all about me. But it also gives you a, a sense of awe. So just listen to this for a second. And maybe listen to it especially as a community that's planted in a Jewish community. I mean, I understand that that's part of your context where you're planted in Pittsburgh. I see Joseph as his story as kind of a reflection of what happens to the gospel when it goes out from Jerusalem. Just listen. The favorite son of Israel is rejected by his brothers and goes into the Gentile world because of that rejection where he saves the whole Gentile world. Not just Egypt, but Joseph, all the nations around Egypt came in for food. So the rejected favorite son of Israel is, goes into the Gentile world through sin, through rejection, and saves them. And what happens? His own brothers become hungry. And they go where? Into the Gentile world where they discover their brother whom they do not recognize. Why? Because he's been made to look like a Gentile. These are the days of wig and white face. How many Sunday school books have we seen where Jesus looks like a, a Scandinavian? You know? He doesn't look Jewish. He didn't look like their brother. And yet he stages a reunion out of love for them. And I think that the prophets say that, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Zechariah, see they speak of a day when God's people will be reunited with his purposes. And, and Paul in Romans says the same thing. There's going to be a reunion. And our job as the, the servants of the favorite son of Israel is to do what they did, to take orders to lay the table, to hide the cup in his bag, to do whatever he tells us to do, to facilitate that reunion. And actually to read Romans 11, which talks of the reunion God longs for with his brothers, just like Joseph did, and pray into it the way Daniel in captivity prayed into Jeremiah until it happened. We're in a day of reunion with the Jewish people, and I believe God wants us to pray into it in the same way.
So just the macro in the micro, and, and, and this should inspire awe in us, the God of the plot, and every one of our plots matters. It matters how we perceive our trials. It matters. Um, okay, let's move on to another scene, and I hope this one will issue in some really more practical tools for you um, as we kind of consider our trials. Joe takes them in and Mo takes them out. And I want to look at the first scene after the Passover, the kind of bookend of this Egypt period. So Joseph on one end and this scene of the Exodus on the, on the other end. It's a very helpless situation. And we're going to look at everyone's reaction to it. I, I love 1 Corinthians 10 quoting where Paul says, the, he's speaking of the wilderness. He says, these things happen to them as an example for us who live at the end of the age. Think about that. He doesn't say these things were written down for us who live at the end of the age. He said they happened to them so that we who live at the end of the age might profit from seeing how God treated them. So it matters. It matters that we understand these things and get the story. So just refreshing our memories, Pharaoh's relented and released the nation of slaves. God's clearly dictating the route they take. And it says that the scriptures, in the scriptures, that he leads them in a roundabout way so he can control their panic. Taking the short way, taking the short way would have required them to fight a battle, and God knew they would bail at that point. So instead, he leads them into an even worse situation. It's just one from which they cannot escape. God leads them right into a dead end. What's up with that? Anyone identifying yet? (laughs) St. Augustine, when going through a difficult period in his life, was told by a friend that his situation was evidence of the love of God. And he said, um, oh, Lord, love me less. (laughs) Um, So hear this little description from Exodus. Then the Lord gave these instructions to Moses. Order the Israelites to turn back and camp by Pihahiroth between Migdal and the sea. Camp there along the shore, across from Baal Zephon. Then Pharaoh will think the Israelites are confused. They are trapped in the wilderness. And once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after you. I have planned this in order to display my glory. Remember that phrase. Through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites camped there as they were told. Then word reaches Pharaoh, the king, and he pursues them with all of his chariots. And it says the Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped beside the shore near Pihahiroth, across from Baal Zephon. Let me describe this place to you. Of course, there's debate about exactly where it is, but the language is a very dark Pihahiroth can be translated the mouth of the gorge, or some Hebrew sources say a better translation is the edge of the chasm. It has the feel of a dangerous place to be stranded. So a million people are herded in to a, a, a kind of a chasm, a frightening dead end. And Baal Zephon was the Egyptian god of darkness. And on some kind of a peninsula facing this chasm, was an idol to this demon god. So that's what is facing them. 
Uh, they're at the edge of a chasm. Before them is a demon god, and behind them is Migdal. And in Migdal, there was a watchtower, an Egyptian watchtower. So all, they've, been, they've been herded into a frightening dead end in front of a demon god in full view of their enemy. Darkness is falling, and they can hear the Egyptian hordes thundering behind them. Yeah. <laughs> An empty, howling wasteland is some of the language. A dead end. How does everyone react? How would you paraphrase it? We know this story. How do they react? Ah! Yeah, that's right. Get us out of here. They cry out to Moses. Well, it says they cried out to the Lord, but they, but they don't really. Then it says that they said to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? And he goes on and on. Leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. My paraphrase for this is basically get us out of here. Um, but uh, they, it says they cried out to God, but they really cried out against their leader. But God had an answer for why he allowed the terror of the situation, and he said it was because his glory would be put on display by the way he rescued his people. Is this vanity on God's part? Is he somehow showing off at our expense? Um, but it's actually for Israel's protection. They need to see and know what sort of God they have. It's not just the Egyptians that need to see it. They need to see it. And it's part of their genetic code. And over and over, he calls the people to remember the Red Sea parting um, and to live into that story when they face their further trials. Jesus did this. I love this for the symmetry of the scriptures. So remember, remember, remember the Red Sea parting. I mean, it's all through Deuteronomy. It's all through the Psalms. The transfiguration. Who shows up to encourage Jesus at the transfiguration? Moses. And do you know what it says? It says they talked about his deliverance, but the word really is just as well translated exodus. Moses is reminding Jesus of the exodus to give him courage for what he's about to face before he goes into Jerusalem. Remember the exodus. This was important. So um, uh, Jesus remembers it. And in John 12, it says, when Jesus is wrestling with the death he knows that awaits him, he says, now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? In other words, get me out of here. And what does he say? But for this very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. It's the same Red Sea struggle. It's either going to be get me out of here because of this trial I'm facing or Father, bring glory to your name in this trial I'm facing. In the Red Sea, on Good Friday, in your darkest places and mine, it's when we're most helpless that God's love and glory are most clear. When we can control our circumstances, we generally do. Could we welcome our weakness as an opportunity for God to be glorified? Hebrews 11.34 says, 
about its long list of saints and their faith. Their weakness was turned to strength. Their weakness was turned to strength. Could we learn not to misinterpret the fact that we feel helpless or weak or even threatened? Could we learn to welcome our helplessness? So that's takeaway number six, timeline takeaway number six. Helplessness is helpful. Helplessness is helpful. And that's uh, number five was... The plot is communal. Thank you very much. Okay, just, I'm not going to tell you this story because I don't have time, but you, uh, everybody needs to read the beginning of Joshua. But just on the theme of helplessness is helpful. Okay, we've looked at the bookends of Egypt and Exodus. Move it over and look at, um, look at the bookends of this. We've just looked at this helpless dead end that God leads his own people into. And what happens at the other end when they cross the Jordan and go into the land? Anybody remember like the first thing that happens after they cross the Jordan and go into the conquest? Somebody's laughing. Do you know? Yes. Yes. Every man of fighting age had to be circumcised. Now, it says that the enemies watched them cross the river and all the nations around were quaking in terror because of the Israelites and what God does for them. And what does God do? I mean, they could have picked off the enemies right then and there. He lays them all helpless, whimpering. They could have been picked off by their enemies with slingshots or something for days. Helplessness is helpful. And, and I think that's why Sabbath is important. Sabbath the idea of stopping everything by an act of the will, it's kind of like a self-imposed helplessness because helplessness is good for us. It reminds us who's actually winning the battles. So I think that's our takeaway from there. That's not on your list. But anyway, okay. So um, how does Moses react uh, we see how the people react. And how does Moses react? He cries out to God and gives them the Lord's instructions. Don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. And um, that's exactly what happens. God gives instructions. Moses holds the rod over the water. It parts. The people move quickly on dry ground and Israel's delivered. And listen to this. Listen to this in light of your own trials. Psalm 76 says that God delivered his people through the sea, on a pathway no one knew was there. We may not see it now, but our crises and our disappointments are going to be vindicated by the God who loves us and who sees. He sees a path you can't see yet. He knows the plot. Years later, Moses uh, describes this situation uh, in a tiny little verse. This is at the end of his life. He's reflecting on this um, experience and uh, he says this and it's quoted in your on your page there God surrounded them meaning his people Israel and watched over them he guarded them as he would guard his own eyes like an eagle that rouses her chicks and hovers over her young so he spread his wings to take them up and carried them safely on his pinions and you listen to that 
and you think, oh, what a sweet image. A bird carrying its babies on its wing. But yeah, stir, oh, we got some good Jewish root scholars in here. Yeah, stirs up the nest is a violent image. Stirring up the nest, and I went online and looked at, you can find videos of, of, of mom and dad eagles teaching their babies to fly. It's violent. They pitch them overboard. And, the, and, and there's, there are pictures of like these babies, and the babies are big. You can hardly tell the difference between the adults and the babies. But they're like on the, on the branches, and mom and dad are literally dive-bombing them. No kidding. They're dive-bombing them. Now, if you're... This is Moses' image for what it felt like to be Israel in the midst of their deliverance. Those baby birds have got to be thinking, is this my mama or my enemy? You know? And don't we seriously sometimes have that question given the things we face? But they get rescued. They learn they can fly. And, and the eagles catch them. The parents catch them just when they need to. So can we stand before the crooked places, in the words of Ecclesiastes, and believe that God will vindicate his purposes for us? Can we call him Lord and receive our lives as he has allowed them to be, even when they look and feel like that? So... I'm just going to use these last few minutes and pull out a couple of very specific suggestions that you'll also find on a page in there that speak uh, that uh, talks about personal reflections or journal. So, um, so timeline takeaway number seven is cry out. God is everywhere urging His people to cry out to Him, and if you read. Um, Numbers 11, Moses has this incredible complaint to the Lord. Listen to this. Heard all the families standing in the doorways of their tents whining, and the, Lord became ex- and the Lord became extremely angry. Moses was also very aggravated. And Moses said to the Lord, Why are you treating me, your servant, so harshly? Have mercy on me. What did I do to deserve the burden of all these people? Did I give birth to them? Did I bring them into the world? Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms like a mother carries a nursing baby? How can I carry them to the land you swore to give to their ancestors? Where am I supposed to get meat for all these people? They keep whining to me. Anyway, it goes on. I can't carry them by myself. This is too heavy. Listen to the end. If this is how you intend to treat me, just go ahead and kill me. Do me a favor and save me this misery. This is Moses to God. Does God fry him on the spot? No. Moses cries out to God. The people did not, really. They, they, they complained, but not to God. I sometimes feel like God is taking my face and saying, give it to me. You know, directly. That's what Moses does, and God an- answers it. And there's a wonderful long list of, of saints in the scriptures who do the same thing. Um, Abraham, what good are your blessings when I don't have a son? Gideon, if the Lord is with us, why are all these bad things happening to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? The Lord has abandoned us, says Gideon, who was about to win the battle. Naomi, widowed and alone, call me bitter. 
because the Almighty has made my life bitter. Jeremiah, why are you like a stream that is dried up? John the Baptist, my translation, captives released? Seriously, this is to Jesus when he was in prison. What am I doing here if you are who you say you are? Jesus is reading Isaiah and saying he represents the freedom of the captives. John the Baptist is in jail saying, what? But he says it. And what does Jesus say? Blessed is he who's not offended in me. Baby eagles, don't be offended. Mama's trying to teach you that you can fly. And you'll never learn it unless she knocks you off the branch. Ask, ask him, call out to him. The disciples in the storm, don't you care about us? Even Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? We know that none of these scenes are the end of the story, but their suffering was gut-wrenching, and God listened and answered. He everywhere begs us to cry out to him. I have to just tell you this one story before I move on about how, how this came home to me. I was in the middle of my uh, tenure as the director of CMJ and so feeling out of my league and required to do things I had no clue how to do. And I woke up every night at 3 in the morning just suffering, you know, and fussing and, oh, you know, I need this and I need this and I don't know how to do this and whatever. And I'd go down and... I would have told you I was praying, but I, I wasn't really. Um, so I, I would go down to the kitchen and make tea. And uh, my daughter had brought home from college a box of Christian tea. I hate this stuff. It's like $3 tea that they sell for 10 bucks because they're Bible verses on the dunkers, you know? It's just like everything I hate about contemporary Christianity. So, so... I'm like, it's three in the morning, I'm dunking my tea, you know, thinking, I can't do this job, I can't do this job, God, what's going to happen? And, and I just absentmindedly look at my little tea dunker. It was from Hosea. What Christian tea quotes from Hosea? It's from Hosea 7.14, and it said, it said, my people wail on their beds in the middle of the night. <laughs> but they don't cry out to me from their heart. Like, if you don't read your Bible, God will get you with a tea bag. <laughs> but I did. I, I was chastened. I went back to bed, and I gave it to him. And I don't have time to tell you the stories of the miraculous things that happened after that. That was a turning point for me. So that's one of my assignments today, whether you take time alone or whether you do this with your small groups. But cry out to God. And there's, there's some scriptures there on that sheet that will encourage you to do so. Timeline takeaway number eight, remember Remember, in Numbers 14, when the people refused to take the land, you know, they have an opportunity. The wilderness wasn't supposed to take as long as it did. And they are supposed to go in and they refuse. God says to Moses, but they've seen what I can do. There's like an air of 
incredulousness to the way the Lord responds to their refusal. He's saying, don't they remember the Red Sea? Don't they know I can deal with the giants? They've seen what I can do. There's a power in remembering. Um, and they're supposed to remember the specific story, but the broader spiritual principle for us is, is that remembering God's particular deliverances in our own lives gives us courage for the present moment. And remembering in, in the scriptures is a muscular word. It's not a just, you know, a nostalgic, oh, that was great when the Lord did that. It, it's, a, it's a powerful thing. Remembering when God does it is the best way we learn that. The scriptures say when God remembers Abraham, he saves Lot. When God remembers Rachel, he opens her womb. The thief on the cross says, remember me when you come into paradise. And that's not going to be the Trinity saying, oh, remember that guy? Yeah. No. <laughs> Remembering him meant bringing him into the kingdom. It's a muscular thing. And so it is for us when we're called to remember what God's done for us. It gives us courage in the moment and reverses despair. So... Um, and, and we see even in Revelation, uh, Jesus calling the churches to remember, to discipline, recall what he's done for them so that they can be called back to the love they had for him at first. And the last, um, the last for this morning, type, uh, timeline takeaway, say that three times fast without enough coffee, is um, C. And I could reword that as um, ask God for spiritual eyes. Here's another description of what Moses went through from Hebrews 27. Hebrews 27 says this. Moses kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. <laughs> Think about that for a second. He kept his eyes on the one who was invisible. What does that look like? How can we possibly? I've referenced a story in your materials from um, the prophet Elisha, whose servant comes out and sees that all of Israel is surrounded by the enemy, and he freaks out. I'm sure you know the story. And Elisha comes out and lays hands on him and prays that God would open his eyes and he would see. And do you remember what he sees? He sees the host of, yeah, the host of heaven surrounding them. And, um, and he's reassured. I want us to take that prayer seriously and pray that we would see our own struggles differently because it changes everything when we do. And, and let me just close with a personal example, a sort of, uh, I don't know, I don't watch television, but real lives, up close and personal thing of how the Lord has used this principle in our lives. A few years ago, Neil and I suffered some uh, many, many difficult things at once and um, kind of a, a difficult season. Um, church crises, deaths of parents, financial sets back, and disappointment in our marriage. And we sought help from a terrific marriage counselor. And she, she helped us to identify something. She called, she, here, here's how she put it. She said, everyone has a BFD. 
BFD stands for big deal. You can fill, <laughs> you, you can fill in the blank. And the more we learned about our own very, you know, our own BFDs, a kind of dark reality began to emerge. And let me just tell you quickly, Neil's BFD is that he was born three months premature, uh, spent th in the early days of incubators, spent his early life in an incubator, came home to an austere mother who was pregnant with the next child and had hired a German nurse. Nobody touched him, really, you know, connected with him. So his BFD is attach, connect. Okay, here's mine. Uh, and I shared some of it last night already. My BFD is coming from a family that was coming unglued. And a lot of my mother's mental illness was focused on me and kind of feeding off me. And so my BFD is stay away. When we began to see, and we were believers, the Lord called us together, that God had put attach with stay away. It really, it darkened our faith for a while. Like, w was God not in control at that point? You know, did he not care whether we were happy or fulfilled or anything like that? But we came to see that he'd called our clashing, I mean, with, the, with a new lens, which is what I'm asking you to ask for, that he called our clashing BFDs together so that once we saw what the issue was, we could cooperate in one another's healing. Because the point really wasn't for us to just be happy, 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 but to be changed, to be redeemed to be communally part of a redemption. And so he called these things together uh, so that we could be healed. And that supernatural sight changed our reality. These things are so deep-rooted. BFDs are rooted in a past or in our pain. And I love that you have inner healing prayer available this weekend. And let me just encourage you as you think and pray about your trials and, and, um, and ask the Lord for vision, maybe the Lord will identify a BFD or two. And if so, ask someone for prayer to help you see differently. We had someone recently come and lead a prayer, um, intercessory healing prayer time. Uh, and I honestly thought, I've been at this a long time. I've seen all the stuff I can see. I've seen all my stuff, and I'm not going to see anymore, and whatever. As soon as she prayed, um, I had an instant memory or picture of being a tiny little child outside my father's closed door late at night after many martinis, and I was banging on the door. Daddy, talk to me. Let me in. Nothing. And the Lord said to me, that's not me. That's not me. My door is open to you. Jesus died to open the door to you. It's never closed. You're not knocking. Knock on my door. It's open to you. And I want your door to be open to your husband and open to the other people in your life. You know, so... Ask God to help you see an inner healing prayer is so helpful there. 
like to, to let God show you where he was or what he has to say or what he wants you to see about the situation you were in. So just summarizing, cry out, start your thanksgiving list, ask God to give you the ability to see the plan B stuff as he sees it. We promise and the scriptures witness that he can bring um, reversal, he can bring re- restoration uh, from our reversals. And, and that we'll step onto the timeline, not just for our own sakes, but for the sake of our communities. So um, I just commend that kind of emotional work today or spiritual work, however you want to do it, alone or with groups or in prayer groups. Um, please take that, those practical things seriously. Um, let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are in awe of you for seeing us before the beginning and loving us and paying the price to bring us into this family, into your family, and for longing to heal us so that we might walk out your purposes in the space of life you've given us to be on the timeline. And so, Father, we would um, present ourselves to you with all of our confusions and um, uh, pain and disappointments and whatever it is that any of us are carrying. Lead us to a place where we are not offended in you because of the things that are our trials. Heal us and give us your lens so that we might have your joy and we might bear your fruit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.